Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Aisha Roscoe, filling in for Sam Sanders. And today we're going to share an episode from our friends at another NPR show, Pop Culture Happy Hour. So this episode is all about the new movie Ghostbusters Afterlife. My friends Glenn Weldon and Stephen Thompson, co-hosts of Pop Culture Happy Hour, called me and NPR contributor Serena Turos to talk all about it. We talk about why it's hard to recapture the original Ghostbusters magic. Enjoy. The Ghostbusters franchise produced two blockbuster movies in the 80s, as well as a 2016 reboot. The latest film is called Ghostbusters Afterlife. It brings together a new generation of Ghostbusters who discover that they need to pick up where the old 80s films left off. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with Glenn and me is NPR's White House correspondent, Aisha Rasko. Hello, Aisha. Hello. Also joining us is NPR contributor, Serena Toros. Hi, Serena. Hey, Stephen. It is great to have you both. So the history of the Ghostbusters franchise is complicated. The original 1984 movie starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Ernie Hudson was a massive comedy blockbuster, but from there, it gets messy. Ghostbusters 2 came out in 1989. It got mediocre reviews. Views, but it performed well at the box office. Still, efforts to continue the series languished, and we didn't get another Ghostbusters movie until 2016 when a reboot directed by Paul Feig with women as the Ghostbusters got swept up in the culture wars and underperformed commercially. Now, Ghostbusters Afterlife reconnects with the original timeline while introducing a bunch of new characters. Carrie Coon plays the estranged daughter of Harold Ramis's character in the original Ghostbusters. She moves to Oklahoma with her science-loving 12-year-old daughter Phoebe, played by McKenna Grace, and her 15-year-old son Trevor, played by Finn Wolfhard. There, the family has to contend with a new supernatural threat as well as the legacy and the equipment the original Ghostbusters left behind. The family is joined by a summer school teacher named Mr. Gruberson, played by Paul Rudd, as well as a junior podcaster who goes by the name podcast, don't we all? (laughs) He is played by Logan Kim. The movie is directed by Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman, who directed the first two Ghostbusters films. Jason Reitman co-wrote this script with Gil Keenan. It's in theaters now. Now, Aisha, I'm going to start with you. What is your relationship with the Ghostbusters franchise, and what did you think of Ghostbusters Afterlife? Okay, so I am a kid of the 80s, so I love the Ghostbusters. I remember it, you know, all the stuff about New York City. I was, Obviously, I was from the South, but my father was from New Jersey. So the idea of like the city and the Slimer and all that stuff, I really <laughs> liked it. There's something about those like 80s New York movies that it just, it hits something for you, right? Like it brings the nostalgia, right? So I really liked that. And I also love the second movie had a Bobby Brown song that I <laughs> listened to to on this day on our own that I will just... <laughs> jam out in the car today. I will probably listen to it after this. I like, I listen to that (laughs) song. It's a great song. So I came into this and I, you know, I was a little concerned because I feel like Ghostbusters is one of those movies that it was just of a moment. And I think it's hard to recapture, you know, I think of movies like Coming to America and stuff like that. Like they were great, 
but they're also like of a moment. They capture a moment. And so with this, mm-hmm. I don't love it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like, I really like the characters. I like podcasts, uh-huh. the little kid. <laughs> I like, you know, Phoebe. Uh, I, you know, Paul Rudd is great as the summer school teacher and possible mom love interest. And so they're likable. The kids don't have much supervision. I do think putting it in a rural area, it kind of took away from it a bit because like the New York was like a part of the character mm-hmm. of the movies. And then you go to this like town and it's not really a part of it. Like at the end, I will say it did kind of warm my cold, cold heart a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> just a bit, but it still didn't completely justify like, why do we need this movie? Mm-hmm. Why does this add anything? Like, I feel like the Creed movies, when you look at them compared to Rocky, I, they added something. Mm-hmm. Like, you got the nostalgia, but you also, like, added something. I'm not sure this adds anything. Um, and so I, I might just watch the original movies mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of watching this one. But I, I don't I don't mind it. If you're with your kids and you don't have nothing else to do, you go see the Ghostbusters <laughs> Afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That, that, that's fair enough. Serena Taurus, how about you? I mean, I watched the Ghostbusters film for the first time, I think in college. I think I've only seen it once. So I don't come to this franchise with a whole lot of sentimental attachment, but I was willing to go into it with an open mind. Yeah, I mean, I read the like two-sentence synopsis before going into it and kind of had the same thoughts as Aisha. Is like, why does this movie need to exist? But that being said, what does it get right? I think it gets the spirit of the 80s right in the narrative. I think... Precocious child is an underrated trope that has been kind of tossed aside in the 21st century, but I love that. It's like one of my favorites. I mean, Phoebe, I think, is fantastic in this as a character, and McKenna Grace really nails this role. I mean, kids doing stuff in the middle of nowhere is the spirit of the 80s. I miss, you know, the time in which children just got to do weird stuff unsupervised and got to explore their own little niche interests. So I think, like, that as a plot point worked perfectly for me and i think the costuming is also really great i think they let phoebe be like a 12 year old girl i feel like i'm so used to seeing girls feel pressured to act and look 10 years older than they actually are that to see her wear like a disgustingly ugly pair of cargo shorts really worked for me (laughs) but then i don't know that this needed to be a ghostbusters film i think if it didn't have that franchise label to it i would have enjoyed it a lot more i think 30 minutes into the film and we're watching, you know, an edited YouTube clip of the first film (laughs) in Paul Rudd's classroom. I was just totally took me out of the movie. I didn't quite know how to reconcile the very serious acting of the first third with then just like the really cartoonish animation of the ghosts that showed up halfway through. It's just too long. I don't like movies that are more than about 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. This is two hours. It takes about 45 minutes for them to fire the first plasma ray. And I was just like, we need the action sooner. Mm-hmm. And then we need to spend a little bit longer building up to what's going on. I also don't like the whole, you know, ancient civilizations are causes of evil in society <laughs> trope. That really, I was like, why are we talking about Mesopotamia and like why in the middle of Oklahoma that never really gets explained they're just like yeah there's like ancient ruins here for no reason waving get to the ghosts (laughs) I do think that this movie does have a lot of heart which is 
the issue that most sequels and franchises get wrong. I think if I wasn't emotionally invested in the journey of these characters, I wouldn't have cared for this film at all. I think this is maybe less a story about the Ghostbusters than it is just a story about loss and grief and how hard it is to cope with those things, especially when you don't have a perfect relationship with the person that you lose. Using the emotion, like the climax of the film as an emotional climax with the family and not really necessarily about saving the world does this film a greater service. Mm -hmm. So overall, you know, I enjoyed it. Would I watch it again? Like I would maybe rewatch the first Ghostbusters? Eh, Probably not. Up next, who is this new Ghostbusters for? Stay with us. Oh boy, how many different ways can we say this was fine? Um, I am not <laughs> mad at this movie. I mean, for a while, the the degree to which it was foregrounding the young actors, uh, McKenna Grace and Logan Kim. By the way, Logan Kim, he is writing a line between funny and Disney Channel precocious, and I think he comes out the right end of it. I think that kid's got a future. Um, that was a little puzzling to me, though, because taking this franchise in a YA direction is a big choice, but it is definitely going for that kids on bikes genre, that mm-hmm. late early career Spielberg. This is almost becomes a pastiche, kind of like that film Super 8 was kind of a, almost a pastiche yeah. of, of Spielberg. But at the end of the day, I think this film was made by people who didn't like the Paul Feig film yeah, for people right. who didn't like yeah. the Paul Feig film. And I don't count myself among the group. I like that movie fine. But if you are one of those people who didn't feel that the Feig movie paid enough deference, was not respectful of the original material, did not fetishize the tech enough of, of <laughs> that first film, let me say a lack of reverence to the source material is not this movie's problem. Not the issue. Especially in the final reel where things get really kind of bogged down. And while I liked it well enough as a movie, it's hard not to see this as kind of a cultural object, as a, as a comment on where we are in popular culture right now, because I think it represents... The same huge missed opportunity that fan services nostalgia over narrative, right? It suffers the rise of Skywalker problem. So, I mean, say what you will about the Fig film. It built on that mythology. It widened mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And even, yes. you know, there was a real Ghostbusters animated series in the 80s. And there were comics. And they, they were supposed to be just money grabs but and brand extenders. But they really built on it. And they widened this mythology. This simply doubles down <laughs> on the first movies. Yeah, it really does. It's not trying to step out of the first movie's shadow. It is setting up camp there. And uh, that is a very intentional choice. And we should acknowledge that. That is one that will be welcomed by a lot of folks for whom, you know, they're going to think this is the model of how you continue a franchise. You simply keep iterating and reiterating without widening it, without deepening it, without exploring new ground. You just stay in one place. Had some good jokes, though. (laughs) And that is how I say this movie was fine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. This this movie and reactions to this movie, like the reactions to the 2016 Feig film, are a Rorschach test. And how you feel about those films often says a lot about your relation to not only these films, but uh, nostalgia itself. And it's kind of interesting that I think all four of us are kind of coming down on the side of, yeah, it's pretty good. (laughs) Because early reviews of this film, I don't usually do this, but I wanted to quote the headlines of two reviews of this film that have already dropped as of this taping. Uh, Deadline says that the movie delivers the smart and fun reinvention this beloved franchise has been waiting for. And then The Guardian says, and I quote, a slimy, stinking corpse of a sequel. 
Uh-huh. All right then. <laughs> no, and I would go now when you now <laughs> when you read those reviews, it's a little clear how the reviewers viewed the Feig film. And one of them was really caught up in the in the the really sexist reaction to the Feig film and felt like this film erased the Feig film in ways that the reviewer found really frustrating and found this to be very cynical in its fan service. And the other one was like, blah, this finally puts that awful Feig film aside and uh-huh. and you know and doubles down on all the things that that we love. And the fact of the matter is, I look at both headlines and I'm like, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> and so if your reaction to this film is, I wish they would just continue the movie that I loved in 1984, this is going to be delightful to you. But if your reaction to it is that like the Paul Feig film got a really raw deal, you're going to, you're just going to be really ticked off because this movie just erases it completely and just doubles down. I really, really agree with what Serena said about McKenna Grace. I think McKenna Grace is really charming and excellent in this kind of central role in the film. I think this film would not have worked at all without just the kind of the pluck and charm and weirdness of that character. I agree with Glenn that as doofy as it is to have a character who calls himself podcast Red flag. in a Red way flag. it felt truer to a lot of podcasters than a lot of Pop cultural depictions <laughs> of podcasting. He had podcasting. great equipment. He did. He did, yeah. he did have unusually good He knew good how to hold a equipment. shotgun mic. Yep. Yeah. I kind of just kind of rolled along with this film. I think some of the secondary characters weren't as well developed as they could have been. I actually really thought the Paul Rudd character was a little underdeveloped. I think I could have stood for more of that Paul Rudd energy that he brings. I He kind of disappears from this film kind of right as it gets into some of the more rote third act machinations that the these films always get bogged down in. But on balance, like, like you guys, I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun. I don't fetishize the movies of my youth. I mean, one of the mantras that came out of the, the discussions of the 2016 film where people were like, you're ruining my childhood. Like the 1984 movie is still there. You can still watch it. Like I didn't necessarily feel like some part of my childhood was activated <laughs> by this movie any more than I thought some part of my childhood was violated in, in 2016. I just thought it was a, a fun kind of IP extension, you know, two and a half star, perfectly fine. If I were... If it were the time of year when I'd be going to movies for the air conditioning, I would yep. go to the, this movie for yeah. the air conditioning. That's <laughs> a, a question I had. Like, why is this film coming out in November? You know, mm-hmm. if I'm at, you know, maximum generosity to watch this film in October. And so I was completely confused as to, like, why they would even bother, re- like, releasing this three weeks after Halloween. That just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, the um, the trailer certainly kind of highlighted that this is the serious Ghostbusters film, which a lot of people are like, why? What? what are you doing? Why? why a serious Ghostbusters film? So I could see that being released, you know, at Oscar bait time. Oscar bait? <laughs> But also close to Halloween. That makes sense too, right? Make it release it close to Halloween. I don't know, man. I think it's counter programming against House of Gucci. (laughs) 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 What will we go see? Kids? House of Gucci? I mean, if I have to choose between Gaga and Ghostbusters, you know which side of the line Uh, I follow. I know which side you're taking. Well, can I just this this series has always bugged me from a taxonomy perspective. Can we agree these are not ghosts? These are not (laughs) the restless spirits of the dead with unfinished business. (laughs) 
exorcisms, right? They are clearly, Aisha, they are demons. They are malevolent okay, entities demons. here to oh. torment humanity. Names mean things, people. This thing that eats metal and the, the slimer eats hot dogs. These are not the shades of loved ones. These are just no. demons. And you're not what? busting them, by the way. You're trapping them, which is a temporary solution <laughs> to a literally immortal problem. So Walter Peck had a point. You know, look, the thing about them, you know, locking them mm. up, which they did deal with in the original movies, is yep. it is an EPA issue. It's just sure like is. your nuclear plants. What do you do with the nuclear waste? What do you mm-hmm. do with these, you know, locked up demons and their all their energy? Yep. So Justice is- for Walter Peck. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters came out when I was 11 or 12 years old. I'm now 49. Like, we're starting to run, the the runway is starting to get short for, like, for further 80s nostalgia. Like, we're kind of... We're We're running out of material. Yeah, and so what is Finn Wolfhard going to do when we run out of 80s? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because that kid was in Stranger Things, he's in It movies, and now he's in this. What's he gonna do when we don't when we don't do the eighties anymore? Well, they haven't remade Cujo. I don't know if that came out in the eighties. I do think they have not remade Beach Street. That is also one of my favorites. Um, people may not know Beach Street, but mm-hmm. and Return to Oz. Did they remake that yeah. one? Oh my yeah. god! Remake okay. that okay. one. Aisha, poi 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 poi. Let the evil eye. No 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 no. Evil no. Eye? Aisha Glenn, you and I are not getting any younger. They're yeah. gonna have to hurry up if they are going to fan service us more eighties nostalgia. They have to they have to get cracked. They have to move fast. Coming up, the things that make us happy. Stick around. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Aisha Rasko, what's making you happy this week? So this week, what is making me happy, and it made me really happy over the weekend, is I binge-watched the second season of Lock and Key. Um, oh. And for people who may not know about Lock and Key, it is based on a, a graphic novel series by Joe Hill. Uh, it is about a family that goes to this house that is a part of their legacy, a part of their... And there are these keys. And they have have very important keys and they have very interesting powers. What I love about this show, and I will say, uh, you know, if you're going straight into the second season, you should watch the first season because it's going to be very confusing. Uh, The second (laughs) season starts out a little slow, but it it builds and it gets good. Um, Is that I just love the conceit of the show, of these keys that do very interesting things. Like... If you could go into someone's head and what that would look like, and it's something that you don't normally see, like these ideas of these powers. I will say about the locks um, and the people in this show who are supposed to keep these keys, they have a very hard time doing so, even when their lives depend on it. <laughs> I do wish they invented also a key ring, but that's a, <laughs> that's for another story. But it's 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 still good. I really like it. Lock and Key. It's on Netflix. Nice. Aisha, that's such a good pick. Uh, I love that series. Uh, and the illustration, the, the books are illustrated by uh, Gabriel Rodriguez, and that is just really adds to the, to the whole experience. But yeah, I haven't checked out the second season yet. Been meaning to catch up. Nice. Thank you, Aisha Rasco. Serena Toros, what's making you happy this week? So I have recently gone down the rabbit hole of the 2019 Netflix series, uh, The Untamed, which is based off of a Chinese novel called Mo Dao Zushi. And this series is incredible. It's 50 episodes, about 40 minutes each. And it takes place over the course of 20 years in these characters' lives. And 
I feel like it's reductive to call it like Chinese Game of Thrones, but if what's interesting to you and compelling to you about Game of Thrones is a giant universe full of warring factions, very, very well-developed characters, 50-plus characters with, you know, complex, nuanced, morally gray motivations, uh, then this is a series that you'd really like. It has about three arcs. One is kind of like prep school for teenage boys becomes like coming-of-age war novel, and then, you know, post-war political machinations, the cost of doing what's right, and then finally it dovetails into kind of like a murder mystery buddy comedy. It contains multitudes, and I think it's a really interesting media experience. Uh, I, f- I forgot to mention, it's queer. The two main characters are men who are, you know, canonically in love, but because this is a, you know, a Chinese-produced TV series, there are limitations to what they're allowed to to portray. And so it was interesting to me as, like, a meta experience to see, like, this is a TV show so much about truth and who gets to tell stories and the way that power influences what people know about each other and society, that it was fascinating to watch this show developed in a place where not all of the the realities of the story can be portrayed on screen. That's what's making me happy this week. The Untamed on Netflix. The Untamed on Netflix. Thank you, Serena. Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? Well, uh, this made the virtual rounds last week as we taped this. So you might have seen it already, but I keep going back to it. I keep finding nuances. Um, The news that Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo have been cast in the film of the musical Wicked, it uh, fluttered like a freshly flushed grouse through gay Twitter and theater (laughs) Twitter last week, causing a range of reactions. My favorite came from uh, two queer comedians, Calvin Seabrooks, whom I've been following for a while. He's at Larry Gavid, G-A-Y-V-I-D. And from Dylan Akira Adler. He's at Dylan Adler underscore, whom I discovered through this uh, Instagram video I'm about to talk about. They came up with what they called a chemistry test for Wicked, featuring Billy Porter and Lin-Manuel Miranda, Seabrook as Porter, and Adler a revelation as Miranda singing (laughs) something good. Take a listen. Oh my God, that Miranda is. That Miranda is right. Oh. You have to see the video on Instagram. It is a lot of it's the body language. I just love his his Lin Manuel is so adenoidal, right? Like, look at my thumb. You can find it on their social media pages at Larry Gavid and at Dylan Adler underscore. Both are great follows, not for nothing, for nonsense exactly like that. Nice. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. What is making me happy this week is another piece of extremely 80s fan service. And that is the announcement that we are getting a new public radio colleague over at KCRW. Our new colleague, Pee Wee Herman, is going to host (laughs) a radio show on KCRW. The, The news of this rolled out via this very strange Twitter exchange where Pee Wee Herman posted an open letter to KCRW asking to get a slot as a DJ. KCRW accepted that request on November 26th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern, available on demand, uh, apparently just for a week after it airs. 
Pee Wee Herman will be on KCRW, the NPR affiliate uh, in the L.A. area, joined by Cherry and Miss Yvonne and Magic Screen uh, to bring some of that wonderful Pee Wee Herman magic to our radios. And when you talk about pieces of 80s pop culture to which we are irrationally attached, <laughs> I am deeply, <laughs> deeply, deeply, deeply attached to the film Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I know Glenn is deeply, uh-huh. deeply attached to Pee Wee's Playhouse uh-huh. and the Pee Wee's Christmas special, oh which is God. almost it's almost time to, to trot out yet again. Um, so seeing Pee Wee Herman join the ranks of my beloved public media colleagues uh, made me very happy. I know they're, they're just scheduled to do the one show. I hope there will be many, many anymore and that eventually we can just consider ourselves co-workers yeah (laughs) and that's what's making me happy this week if you want links for what we recommended plus some more recommendations subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash pop culture newsletter that brings us to the end of our show you can find all of us on twitter you can find me at i dislike steven you can follow glenn at gh weldon you can follow serena at serena toros you can follow aisha at aisha rasco you can follow editor jeff Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy, producer Candace Lim at the Candace Lim, and producer Jared Gare at Jared M. Gare. You can follow producer Ramel Wood at Blurgosphere. You can follow producer Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band Hello Come In provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. We will see you all next week. Thanks again to our friends at Pop Culture Happy Hour who originally produced this episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday. For that, we want to hear the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself and email the file to samsanders at npr.org. All right, until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm Aisha Roscoe filling in for Sam Sanders.